This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Welcome, everyone. Today is Sunday, September 18th, and this is Pastor Ethan. I want to thank you for joining with me as we continue in the opening paragraphs of this amazing letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, right? What we know as the book of Colossians. I encourage you to have your Bible, perhaps print out the notes from our website, and we will jump in. You know, recently I was listening to a podcast about the many way our lives have benefited from technology. And the focus was on like super high-tech things that may be, you know, present or, or coming on the horizon. But when I think about the, my own little story in my life, the technology I've benefited from the most, it's been around a long time. And it's actually quite simple. And it's eyeglasses. You know, without my glasses, my vision is blurry. It is distorted. Things don't look as they actually are, and this prevents me from being able to function. You know, for some glasses, the lenses are just magnifying. They make things bigger. You know, for me, this, this won't work. This would just turn a small blur into a big blur. My lenses are corrective. They are progressive. I actually have four different prescriptions, and for, to me, they are a high-tech marvel. You know, this idea of corrective lenses is something that applies in life as well. You know, doesn't it, if you think of it? You know, there are times when how we see things, the lens through which we look at life, just try to understand things, it can be distorted, maybe just wrong. And this can lead to confusion, disillusionment, missing out on things, misunderstanding things, and people. Friends, there are times when we need our vision to be corrected. You know, as people of faith, as disciples of Jesus, this applies to us as well. You know, even with the greatest sincerity, there are times when how we understand things, you know, things about God, about ourselves, about other people, about how we live this thing called the Christian life, you know, when our vision can be distorted and it needs to be corrected. You know, as it turns out, God has given us the ultimate set of corrective lenses, and it is called Scripture. Now, it's very possible, of course, to have a distorted understanding of what Scripture says, about what it means. You know, this is why we come to it consistently, humbly, intelligently, setting aside our own agendas, even our preconceptions, with hearts and minds that foremost desire to hear and learn, right? Not just justify and defend. But friend, Scripture is where we start. It is our source. It is our lens. If you've heard the phrase, you know, a biblical worldview, well, the key there is biblical. So over these next two messages, where I'm going with this, our text is bringing a corrective lens to what may be, um, I was going to say one of, but I think may be the biggest, most central, fundamental practice in all of Christian life, really in the life of any religious system you could find. But at the same time, it's one of the most misunderstood if we hold this practice up to the teaching of the New Testament. Well, what is it that I'm talking about? Friends, I'm talking about prayer. And just to cut to the chase here, friends, the lens of Christian culture, and I could also say Christian history, whatever, the lens of Christian culture sees prayer primarily as the means by which we ask God to do things for us. But you think about that statement. That's a very direct way to put it, because I'll tell you, it is true. You know, like some of you, I've been, I've been 
countless times and countless times of prayer in almost countless churches. And while this is not always the case, it is overwhelmingly the case. We view and practice prayer as a means of asking God to meet our needs, our needs as we understand them. I mean, you can look at Christian books, you can listen to Christian radio, you know, wherever you will within the Christian world, and you will find this is the dominant understanding of prayer. And you may say, Scripture teaches us to bring our needs to God, doesn't it? Yes, it does. For example, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, very famous passage, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Right there, bring our request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, that is a powerful scripture. But even here, the main focus of prayer is to bring to bring us into a place of gratitude. And the result is peace in our hearts and in our minds. And then if you go on in that passage, in the very next thought, Paul famously will say that he has learned to be content, at peace, in any circumstance, because it is God who gives him strength. You see, the entire focus of Philippians 4 is God's invitation for us to know him, to trust him, and be open to what only he can bring us. Peace, joy, hope, contentment, courage. And friends, this is the overwhelming theme of prayer in the New Testament. Knowing God, knowing Christ, receiving his nature and character, and participating in God's work. So, if the lens of Christian culture sees prayer primarily as the means by which we ask God to do things for us, friends, the lens of Scripture sees prayer primarily as the way we open our hearts for the work God desires to do in us. You see, biblically, principally, prayer isn't about God working from the outside in. What I mean by that is bringing change into our external needs, which then leads us to faith, peace, and hope, and you know, increased faith. Rather, prayer is principally about God working from the inside out, transforming us in our spirit, in our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, bringing love, hope, and wisdom through faith. And this faith then leading to transformation in how we relate to the circumstances around us. And this is the focus of Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. So let's, let's just read this passage. It's verses 9 through 11 that we're looking at. Actually, we're only going to get through verse 10, but I'll read 9 through 11 of Colossians chapter 1. And this is what we read. For this reason, Paul says, of course, you have to go look and see what he's just written. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Okay, when Paul says, for this reason, of course, what I just said, he is referring back to his thankfulness for the Colossian believers for their faith, their hope, and their love. I read that verses 1 through 8. But because of his prayer, but because of this, his prayer for them, he says here, it's unceasing. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. 
You see, Paul's emphasis here is that his prayer is consistent. It's daily. It's intentional. You know, last in the, our last message, we saw how this kind of ongoing prayer opens our hearts and minds for the Spirit to work. In the case that we see in verses 1 through 8, giving rise to gratitude. But likewise, this kind of prayer is an expression, if you just think about it, it's an expression of love. I mean, Paul is praying not just out of rote ab- obligation. He prays continuously because he loves this church. He loves these believers, even though he's never met them in person. And he is confident of God's love for them. And as we're going to see, his prayer centers on the desire for these new believers to come to know just how much it means that God truly loves them so that they will not fall prey to the false teachers who are seeking to diminish who Jesus is while elevating human pride, legalism, and elitism. And so Paul begins by praying that God, by the Holy Spirit, will fill these believers with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. There in verse 9, he says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will, God's will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. This is exhibit A of how the New Testament teaches us to pray, that God would give to us, that he would fill us with the knowledge of his will. Now, it's important for us to understand what Paul means here by God's will, because this is another New Testament concept that's often distorted and misunderstood. We tend to think of God's will in terms of what choice does God want me to make in this specific circumstance? You know, things such as, is it career path A or B, what have you? But friends, the greater emphasis here and throughout the New Testament is on the idea of God's great purpose, who he is, what he is doing, and how he is doing it. This is sometimes called, and by the way, seminary word alert, this is sometimes called God's decretive will. Right, um, based on the word decree, we get the word decree from that, decretive, meaning his great unalterable purpose of redemption. Right, The redemption of all things that began in Genesis chapter 3 was fulfilled in Christ and is now being worked out in human history. See, this isn't just academic. This means that God's will for us will always be consistent with his work of bringing redemption to all people. Something for us to think about when we consider our words and our actions in relationship to the people in life around us. See, another big New Testament theme about God's will is sometimes called his perceptive will, right? As in precepts or commands, right? How God calls us to live, expressing his nature and his character right here, right now, in the midst of life as it really is, whatever our circumstances may be. Because this brings up a key point. The word here for fill, right? Paul prays that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will. Like This has a qualitative sense. But the idea isn't that we would just receive a whole lot of intellectual knowledge of God's will, but that our lives, our actions, our countenance would be fully characteristic of God's will. So Paul goes on then to say that God is going to do this through the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. And wisdom and understanding here, this means that this characterizing knowledge of God's redemptive purpose, that this will penetrate and bring transformation into our ethics, how we think, right, and how this wisdom works itself out in the practicality of how we live, how we relate to people. 
You know, another thing worth mentioning here, in his commentary, um, N.T. Wright points out that wisdom, the ability to think and to consider, to employ our intelligence in regards to Scripture, to God and to other people, this is a gift. This is a gift that God gives us that will be inherent in a person who is walking in a dependent relationship with God. Let's dial in on that a little bit. See, Wright says that to grow up in every way, and that's language that Paul uses in, in, in his letters, that we would grow up in every way in Christ. To grow up in every way as believers will include the awakening of our intellectual powers, the ability to think coherently and practically about God and his purposes in the world. The point is that Paul never places spiritual life against intellectual understanding. And friends, this is actually incredibly relevant right now. As there is a growing anti-intellectualism, it's actually always been around, but it's growing and it's present in parts of the church, particularly where we see this toxic nationalistic blend of politics and pseudo-Christian theology. And this anti-intellectual way of thinking is damaging to the church's witness and to God's redemptive purposes. See, in Romans 12, Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be people who are critical thinkers, who are able to listen and consider and willing to be challenged intellectually. Friends, in our relationship with Christ, God never asks us to check our brains at the door. So knowledge, wisdom, understanding, these are the result of a spirit-filled life. And it's a primary purpose of prayer that God teaches us to ask him for this to happen, or to grow in our lives. So Paul goes on and he says that this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding has a direct purpose. Verse 10, Paul says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Think about that. Paul is praying that as a result of being characterized by the knowledge of God's will, his purpose, and the Spirit's wisdom and understanding at work in our lives, that we will be worthy of God and pleasing to God. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that is a huge thing to say. I mean, just, you know, virtually here, I'm trying to imagine all of you listening to this. Just a quick show of hands. When you think of last week, how many, of you, how many of you would say that your lives were worthy of God and pleasing to him in every way? You know, from one perspective, this sounds like a crushing burden. I mean, who could live worthy of God and always please him? But this is the perspective, that is the perspective of performance-based acceptance. And as we've talked here many times, God is not a God of performance-based acceptance. See, rather, my friends, this is an invitation into dependence. I want you to think of this image of a loving parent teaching their toddler to walk, to take those first steps. You have the child, let's say their eyes fixed on their mom, and this little tiny, this little tiny human slowly stands, takes a few steps, and then they're back down again. Now, does the parent say, I can't believe you? You're not worthy of me. You're not pleasing to me. 
No, of course not. Right? The parent understands, and in fact, they are absolutely filled with joy. They are thrilled as the child looks to them, trusts them, and slowly, haltingly begins to take their next steps. Friends, God knows that we will not reach perfection. In fact, at its core, being a disciple of Jesus is not even about moral perfection. It is about trust, dependence, and a yieldedness to the presence, the life, the nature and character of Christ within us. You see, the essence of sin is not failure, stumbling, when we are trying, right? When we are following Christ, when our heart is saying, you know, Lord, it seems like I'm tripping every third step here, but in my heart, my desire is for your will to be done. Rather, guys, the essence of sin, or a big, big, big part of what sin is, is the prideful decision to follow ourselves instead of Christ. To say in our heart, God, I know I believe in you, but right now, my desire is for my will to be done. And like a loving parent watching their child learn to walk, what pleases God is for our hearts to be set on him, to be looking to him, for us to know him, trust him, and grow in our sincere desire to obey him. And friends, this is key. Being worthy and pleasing to God isn't about performance-based acceptance, but it will, by definition, be transforming in how we live. I mean, consider James 3.13. I didn't include the scripture in your outline, but listen to what it says. Um, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And guys, from a broader perspective of the New Testament, we could hear James saying, so you think you're wise and understanding? Then show this by how you live, by how you love, for how you humbly love the people around you is the chief expression of God's wisdom. So now Paul gives some primary examples of what it looks like to live a life that is worthy and pleasing of God. And the first is that in Christ, our lives will be bearing fruit. We'll be fruit bearers. We read, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, this is just the practical outworking of what we just discussed. When our lives are led by the Spirit internally, when we are trusting and looking to God internally, this will be expressed through how we live externally. And we see this metaphor of bearing fruit throughout the New Testament, right? You're likely very familiar with this. See, just as fruit is the inevitable product of a healthy plant, fruit in our lives is the inevitable result, both inwardly and outwardly, of a healthy, honest, dependent relationship with God. Now, what this fruit is, at its core, is, well, it's the fruit of the Spirit, the character and nature of Christ in us, expressed in how we feel, we think, and we act. You know the scripture, things such as hope, joy, peace, love, patience, courage, contentment. And these are the fruit of God's presence primarily internally, and they will be expressed in how we live externally, in our relationships with the people around us. Things such as compassion, service, kindness, generosity, and good works, right? making the lives of people around us better, desiring and seeking actively to do that. See, that's what Paul is getting at here. 
the fruit of Christ's Spirit within us will first change who we are and then will inevitably and increasingly bring God's nature and character into what we do. And guys, the amazing thing of God's grace is that we don't have to be stressed out about coming up with good works in order to please God. We simply live with the expectation that God will give us opportunities to be his agents of goodness as we go through each day. You know, this is another contrast between the ethos of the first century church that we see here and today's evangelical culture, which, if I could humbly say, is borderline obsessed with strategic planning, large-scale ministry, which is increasingly dependent upon elite, highly talented visionary leadership, and frankly, lots of money. I mean, compare this with what Paul proclaims in the incredibly encouraging passage we see in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are God's handiwork, right? His, his creative genius, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And friends, that wasn't just written to the apostles in Jerusalem, all right, or limited to church leadership. Paul wrote this to the very new communities of disciples in cities like Ephesus and Colossae, to common believers who, by growing in their God-given wisdom and understanding, resulted in everyday lives that were worthy and pleasing to God and were bearers of the Spirit's fruit as they went about their daily lives. Friends, this is how the first century world was changed. And this is how God will bring his kingdom change into our world today. But moving on. Okay, so Paul has prayed. Let's just recap here. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And then he says, and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, it might sound here like Paul is being redundant, but he's not. Rather, what we see is this prayer is like a self-reinforcing and beneficial spiral. You see, we see that God reveals to us the knowledge of his will, who he is, his redemptive purpose. And by the Spirit, we grow in our understanding and wisdom and how that will characterizes who we are, which in turn results in our lives being increasingly pleasing to God and how we look to him, how we desire to live in obedience, which takes on life by bearing fruit in the things that we do, in good works, which then in turn leads us by experience and in partnership with Scripture into a deeper knowledge and understanding of who God is. I want to give you an example. That, that, that's a mouthful there. But I want to give you an example from my own life, from where I am in my journey. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to get just a little personal here. Friends, over the past year, past several years, but really specifically just this year, this past year, as I believe that God has been convicting me and challenging and growing my concept of what it means that his nature, that his great purpose, his will, the ultimate goal, God's ultimate goal in relationship to his creation is redemptive. I'm talking about the concept that we're going to wrestle with in a few weeks, so brace yourselves, by the way. Here's a, here's a couple of excerpts from verses 16 through 18 of Colossians 1. Paul writes, he says that all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. 
For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, God's great purpose and work in all of creation, in all things, is redemptive. So, this gets practical really quickly. I'll tell you a little story. Just yesterday, um, my wife and daughter and I, we were driving back from Denver, and we stopped for gelato in Frisco. And we're pulling in on parallel parking, and as we're doing this, this young woman walked by, dressed in a eh, maybe a rather extreme example of what you would call goth. And before I thought about it, I rather sarcastically said, just not outside, but inside our van, I said, nice outfit. Now, I wasn't consciously trying to be mean, but friends, that reaction wasn't of the spirit. No, even in a subtle way, what's going on in my mind there, I I was diminishing her. I was being judgmental. It might seem small, but I was devaluing her. And at a different time in my life, my reaction may have included thinking something like this. You know, people like her are the problem. I mean, look at that. She's probably immoral, maybe an addict, maybe both or worse. Now, maybe this young woman did have some issues, but maybe she didn't. And by the way, there are plenty of people who dress and externally act like good conservative citizens who are dealing with immoral, immorality, addiction, and far worse. But in the midst of that thought, my daughter, who at times is also a voice of my conscience, said, Dad, did you have to say that? And the answer is that no, I didn't. And as we sat there eating our gelato, I thought about how that young woman was a precious, eternal soul in creation of God. And God's desire for her, God's countenance to her, is redemptive. This means that as a person who has been given the wisdom and understanding of God, if I will listen, my my countenance and my posture towards her and people like her will likewise be redemptive, compassionate, desiring that she would come to know the presence and life of her creator. Now, this particular person, she walked on down the sidewalk. I'll never see her again. I'll never know her. We, we went in ourselves to get our gelato. But friends, there are plenty of people in my life like her that I do know or that I have the opportunity to know. People who are very different from me. People whose stories that I just don't understand. right? Maybe that I just don't like. And for whom my first instinct used to be thinking, you are the problem. And God's countenance toward you is punitive. So, over the past year, I've walked through a few doors that I think just maybe the Spirit is nudging me toward. And I've purposely developed a few friendships with people who are very different from me. People I've never associated with before. And as a part of this, a few months ago, I entered into one of these friends' worlds. Okay, I'm not going to give you any details, and it was nothing heroic, trust me. I just showed up in a place and time where I wasn't expected, and I was just present. I was a friend. And recently, I had coffee with that friend, and they said to me, Ethan, you have no idea what it meant 
that day that you came to where I was. And after you left, I just cried. And guys, from that conversation, right, that followed just really a a simple act of kindness, a door is opening for a renewed conversation about Jesus. Let me encapsulate this. Friends, in, in, in my story, God is leading me deeper into the knowledge of his will. This is renewing my desire to follow him, to be pleasing to him, which has led me to take actions that I wouldn't have taken before. And as a result, I'm experiencing God work in me, which is then leading me deeper into scripture and a desire for wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of who God is and his will and his purposes. I mean, bringing this all the way to us, friends, this is Paul's prayer, that we will grow in our knowledge of God, which will result in us increasingly living in a way that pleases God, which in turn will deepen our knowledge of God. In church, and our relationships with one another, that is something for us to pray for. Now, from here, on top of all of this, Paul is going to pray that we will be strengthened with all the power of God's glorious might. What a thought. But right now, I've run out of time. And so we're going we're to delve into that incredible statement next week. Friends, I love you. Thanks for um, joining with me today. And we will see you again next Sunday.